0: Well, hello, everyone. My name is J.B. Hickson with Not By Works Ministries. It is Friday, August the 12th. Thanks for joining us for the podcast today. I want us to take a look today at a passage of Scripture that is very long on application, but often short on contextualization. In other words, it's a passage of Scripture that is well-loved, well-known, certain portions of it anyway, uh, and rich with application. But unfortunately, many people fail to see uh, the forest for the trees when it comes to this uh, passage of Scripture, much like uh, doing a, a jigsaw puzzle. You know, some people uh, get obsessed with each individual piece, trying to find the edge pieces or the corner pieces or certain pieces with certain colors. Uh, and then other people, like myself, like to cheat and look at the box cover and sort of work our way through the puzzle by kind of following what's on the cover of the box. In other words, I like to look at the big picture and see things uh, in context that way, rather than drilling down uh, too analytically uh, on each individual word or sentence or, or phrase. There's certainly a, a place for analytical Bible study. We do need to understand the literal, grammatical, historical context of each passage. We need to understand the syntax of it, the grammar of it. But at the same time, the Bible tells a story from cover to cover, and we need to understand it systematically and synthetically as a whole. And so today, I'd like us to look at the Sermon on the Mount, which has... All sorts of eschatological implications, daily living implications, implications as it relates to the relationship between the church and Israel and the distinction between the two. And of course, it's got several smaller little snippets within it, or pericopes is the literary term, uh, that are very Uh, helpful and uh, warm and applicational and ones that that you uh, probably know. For example, it's in the Sermon on the Mount that we get what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. It's actually a model prayer. But we also get uh, some great teaching from our Lord uh, on worry. And we get the Beatitudes and lots of really uh, fascinating material. But we need to understand how it all fits together. So that's what I'd like to do over the next few minutes is just take you verse by verse, section by section, uh, through the Sermon on the Mount in sort of a high-level, fly-by uh, overview. So first, let's put it in context. I'll be looking at Matthew's account, which is Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Matthew, of course, uh, is the earliest gospel writer, written around 44 to 47 or so A.D., Uh, Modern scholars, many of them today, ever since the rise of higher criticism, have tried to suggest that Mark was the first gospel, Uh, but I uh, don't agree with that at all. I believe Matthew was the first gospel, as the church understood and taught for really 1900 years until the early 20th century. Uh, And Matthew was writing then roughly 10 years or so after the life and ministry of of Christ. Now, the events that he's recording here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in chapters 5 through 7, of course, took place during the first year of Christ's earthly ministry. So that would be, you know, sometime roughly around 30 AD. Uh, So uh, here you have Matthew who's writing to convince a predominantly Jewish audience that Jesus Christ, whom they crucified, is in fact the long-awaited Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And uh, he's uh, organizing his thoughts, like all gospel writers, according to that theme. So, gospel literature, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when it comes to biblical gospels, uh, this, the uh, Uh, synoptic gospels. Anyway, John is a gospel, but it's in a class by itself. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each of these gospel writers uh, takes selected events from the life and ministry of Christ and sort of organizes them uh, chronologically, generally speaking, in order to make a point, to make a a theme. And as I mentioned, Matthew's theme is to prove that Jesus is uh, the Messiah, the King. Uh, So gospels are Chronological in general, they start with the birth narrative, they end with the passion narrative. But along the way, there's some things that are kind of uh, structured in order to make a point. And, and you see that very vividly in uh, Matthew's gospel. So he, the Sermon on the Mount is the first major teaching of Christ that Matthew records. Now, we know by comparing uh, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, that it probably happened a little bit later into his first year, not right out of the chute. But Matthew includes it here uh, to make a point. So if you kind of look at the flow of thought in Matthew, of course, he begins with the genealogy. Then we have the birth of Christ and the visit of the Magi. And then you have... um, you know John the Baptist and Satan's tempting Jesus in the wilderness and then Jesus at the end of chapter 4 begins his Galilean ministry calls his disciples and so forth and then Matthew records this sermon on the mount it's it's called the sermon on the mount for obvious reasons because he gave this sermon atop of a mountain and multitudes had gathered but as we're going to see he wasn't just speaking to the multitudes he was speaking uh, primarily to the Jewish leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees who were in the crowd listening. And he was kind of speaking to them without speaking to them. And we know this because in Matthew's account, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we find out that, you know, the the people were astonished at his teaching and he kind of riled up, as it were, uh, the, the, the leaders because he taught as one uh, <clears throat> having authority and not as Uh, the scribes. So there's nothing explicit in Matthew's account that indicates Jesus was, you know, looking directly at the Pharisees or scribes. uh, But you kind of read between the lines and you can tell his message was targeting uh, them. And and if I could summarize the overall teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, it would be this. The kind of righteousness that heaven demands is faith righteousness, not self-righteousness. And so Jesus comes on the scene in a first century Jewish uh, uh, context where the Jews, by the time of Christ's ministry, had really drifted far away from the intent of the Old Testament law. They had forgotten that Father Abraham himself was made righteous by faith, and they had convinced themselves that they could be made righteous before a holy God by keeping a list of do's and don'ts and a checklist with dotting their I's and crossing their T's. They had Kind of come up with 613 laws that they thought had, they had to keep, and and so the Pharisees and and Sadducees were, were, and the scribes, the leaders within Judaism, were very good at kind of outwardly making sure they you know looked the part, but their heart was far from him. And Jesus, as he so masterfully does, of course he's the Son of God, God in the flesh. So, but he's also, humanly speaking, a, a phenomenal teacher, and he. He he's able to draw that out of them and and make the point without explicitly saying it the way I just sort of summarized it. So he begins the Sermon on the Mount with the famous Beatitudes, and that's basically just his way of getting their attention, because he starts out by saying just the opposite of what you would have expected in that culture. He's pronouncing blessing on people who culturally would not have been blessed. Uh, it's not the poor that were considered blessed it was the rich it's not the meek that were considered blessed it's the strong it's it's not those that are persecuted that are considered blessed they 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 they're not considered blessed they're they're suffering you know but jesus says just the opposite blessed are the persecuted blessed are the poor blessed are the meek and so forth so blessed are the merciful you know again in the culture it was the strong you know righteous and vengeful people that got uh, the attention. And so Jesus is just sort of getting their attention by making these broad statements that would have undoubtedly caused the crowd to scratch their heads and cause the Pharisees to sort of gasp and say, what in the world is this guy talking about? And so then he goes on to explain really that the Jewish people. Remember, this is before the church. This is during Christ's earthly ministry when He came to offer the kingdom. Remember, His early message was, Repent, for the kingdom is at hand, as was John the Baptist's message. He was basically coming to say, Hey, the king is here receive me and we'll usher in the kingdom, you know, from a human chronological perspective. Now we know from reading the Old Testament and, and now that we have the complete revelation of God, we can connect the dots and we know that God's plan all along was that Israel would stumble over the cornerstone. They would, they would crown him with thorns instead of a king's crown. Uh, they would reject him and then God would usher in the church age and then return once again to Israel at the second coming of Christ during that tribulation time so but humanly speaking jesus is still speaking in real time to the nation of israel and he's talking to them about uh you know the kingdom and what it's going to take to to get in the kingdom and and what their purpose is israel's purpose has always been to bring glory to god and to 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 be a light in a pagan world and draw the pagan nations uh around them to yahweh and so uh, jesus uh um, goes on to say, a key verse is in chapter 5, verse 20, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So again, it's my speculation that the scribes and Pharisees were within the sound of His voice, but even if they weren't, that type of statement would have quickly made its way back to them. You know, did you hear what Jesus said about you? And Jesus is basically saying... You've got to have a greater righteousness than these guys if you want to get into the kingdom. And you can almost hear, you know, the gasps from the crowd, because in that culture, they thought, even though they they recognized that the scribes and Pharisees lorded it over them and were arrogant, uh, they nevertheless thought, hey, these guys have it together. They dress right. They talk right. They walk right. Uh, So they were sort of the standard. And for Jesus to say that you've got to have more righteousness than them would have been, you know, quite a shock. And so later on, of course, he goes on to explain at the end of chapter 5 that really the righteousness that heaven demands is perfect righteousness. He says, therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And so between his statement of your righteousness has to be better than the Pharisees or you'll never get into the kingdom and his statement, you've got to be perfect, he begins to chip away at the assumptions of the Jewish people In the first century. And he begins to explain things like, well, you may have been patting yourselves on the back because you've never committed murder, so you haven't violated that command, but let me ask you, have you hated? If you've hated, you've broken that command. You may be patting yourselves on the back because you've never committed adultery, as the law says, but I'm here to tell you, if you've lusted, you've broken that commandment. So he's beginning to, to remind them that it's not their outward behavior that matters. It's a matter of the heart. In other words, it's not what you do that matters. It's what's in your heart. And as he would say time and again in various different ways throughout his ministry when confronting the scribes and Pharisees, uh, they their heart was far from him. They had never trusted in God to save them and instead had thought they could save themselves by Doing good works. So throughout the rest of chapter five, uh, leading up to that statement, you got to be perfect. He's just r- kind of reminding them that the very things that they think, you know, give them a standing before God actually really don't, unless it's born out of a pure heart. And then in chapter six, uh, he continues to kind of uh, poke a little bit at the uh, scribes and Pharisees by talking about. You know, don't do your charitable deeds before men. You know, don't uh, uh, make an open show of it when you do it. Don't pray loudly so that everybody can hear you. Don't you know fast in such a way that everybody knows that you're fasting. Those types of things. Um, the, the model prayer, by the way, that he gives in the midst of this, which the church historically has sort of taken up and uh, incorporated into corporate worship, uh, it's kind of interesting because what Jesus was indicting there was these repetitious prayers that the self-righteous scribes and Pharisees would pray very loudly. And Jesus plainly says, when you pray, do not use vain repetitions. Um as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. He says, don't be like them. And Jesus sort of implicitly there is, is likening the heathen, the Gentile un, you know, non-Jews, to the self-righteous Jewish leaders who were really no different uh, than, the, than them. And so he says, don't be like them. And and he says, so when you pray, pray something like this. And then what we know as the Lord's Prayer, this was really the first time it had ever been voiced or uh, recorded, as Matthew recorded it under the inspiration of the Spirit. And, of course, it begins, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And so uh, I just find it uh, somewhat uh, interesting, almost humorous, that the church took that sample prayer that Jesus gave and then made it into this formulaic, repetitious thing that a lot of churches say every Sunday. And of course, it's part of the Word of God. Anytime you recite the Word of God, that's that's wonderful. But there's nothing you know, about the Lord's Prayer itself that is any more sacrosanct than any other part of scripture. And in fact, when we turned it into a repetitious statement that we say every Sunday, we're doing just the opposite of what Jesus meant when he gave the sample prayer. But all of this was just part of, once again, indicting uh, the Jewish leaders uh, and any of the common folk that were on the hillside that day who had the same impression that somehow to measure up, they had to be like the Pharisees. They had to be like uh, the scribes. And then, of course, p- chapter six includes a really wonderful section that I think transcends time and it has timeless truths uh, that can very easily be applied in any age about a worry. And, you know, the again, this is just uh, targeting the self-selfishness, the self-centeredness uh, of people in their day that thought they had it all together and Uh, And he says, look, you know, you don't need to worry about all these things. You need to trust God. In fact, worrying isn't really going to change anything at all. And um, so he says, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. And then you move into chapter 7, the last of the three chapters in Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount. Of course, the chapter and verse divisions were not in uh, the original text when Matthew wrote it. It was just one long uh, section. But he gets into uh, the section on judge not that you be not judged. Now, in chapter 7, we have a couple of key, really three key passages that have been, you know, really uh, uh, obliterated in the common interpretation that people make today. And this is one of them. How many times have you heard someone say, judge not that you be not judged? And with what judgment you judge, it will be, you know, It'll be come back on you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but not consider the plank in your own eye? You know, so people take that verse out of context and say there's never an occasion... To judge others, well, of course, comparing scripture with scripture, there are plenty of passages that tell us we should, in fact, uh, judge others based on certain criteria, and you know, notice that, and evaluate that, and recognize that. In some cases, avoid their behavior and that kind of thing. What Jesus was really uh, rebuking here was the kind of judgment that the Pharisees and scribes were exhibiting, which was this high and mighty, arrogant, pious viewpoint where they looked down condescendingly upon others who weren't as good as they were. That's the kind of judgment that Jesus is, you know, criticizing here. In fact, he says it plainly in verse 5 of chapter 7, hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And this is a very meaningful passage for for me and our ministry, because of course at Not By Works Ministries we're passionate about the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel that undergirds everything we do. All of our Bible prophecy teaching and conferences and books—it's all about getting the gospel out there. And unfortunately, there's a whole, um, you know, stream of uh, theology when it comes to the doctrine of salvation out there that suggests that if you're not living a godly life, you're not saved. That somehow your works are the determining factor as to whether or not you're a Christian. In fact, I just uh, talked about this this past Wednesday in our midweek uh, service on August the 10th when we talked about perseverance of the saints and are uh, in, in the midst of that uh, discussion. But And a lot of people don't realize when they do that, they're you know actually violating exactly what Jesus said uh, forbids here in the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew 7. What he's saying is don't look at someone else who may be committing outward sins that that run against the grain. Maybe they're maybe they actually are committing adultery. Uh, maybe they actually are stealing. Maybe they are struggling with major sins. But when you look down on the on them and act like you're better than them, Jesus is saying, are you really? I mean, if you're lusting, are you any better than they are? and you know to apply that in today's language what people will say is if someone's struggling with you know addiction or drugs or sexual sins or other or alcohol or whatever it might be and you know they will hastily dismiss them and say oh there's no way that person can be a christian look at their life And yet at the same time, they know in their own heart that they're still struggling with sins that they've been struggling with throughout their Christian life. They may not be as visible, but they're still there. So the fact of the matter is all sin grieves the Holy Spirit. And uh, believers do sin. We still have that sin nature, that fleshly nature. And if we cater to the flesh, we're going to produce fruit of the flesh. If we walk in the Spirit, we're going to produce fruit of the Spirit. Uh, So we just want to be careful about too quickly judging others, at least judging their eternal destiny based upon you know their behavior. Now, it's certainly appropriate when someone is living in sin to come alongside them, talk with them, help encourage them and restore them. But we need to leave the issue of one's eternal destiny out of it because we're not saved by works. It's not by works of righteousness, which we do, but according to His mercy, He saved us, as Titus 3, 5 tells us. That's the theme verse for our ministry. Uh, we're not saved by works, so we can't be proven unsaved by them. We can't lose our salvation. We can't disprove our salvation or invalidate our, our salvation based on our works. And so uh, Matthew 7, uh, you know, is often turned on its head. And we're going to see another example of that in just a moment when people, you know, take the passage, take it out of context and apply it in just the opposite way of what Jesus was saying. Uh, So uh, he talks about judge not lest you be judged. And then he moves on and talks about the narrow way, for example, uh, which is really kind of coming to a climax at the close of a sermon. You know, he Like a masterful preacher, he begins with an attention getter with the Beatitudes, and then he, he ends with some pretty powerful statements that challenge the, the listeners to apply what he's been saying. And as he's getting to that conclusion, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go by in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. And indeed, that's always been true. Uh, Even though salvation is simple... Uh, Even so simple, even a child can be saved. You just trust in Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said, Suffer the little children to come unto me. It's certainly not complex or complicated. It's a free gift. And like all free gifts, it must be freely received. You receive it by faith. Uh, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life. John 6, 47. He said in John 10, 28, uh, I give you eternal life if you believe in me. I give you eternal life and you shall never perish, period. So it's pretty simple but it's the very simplicity of it that causes people to stumble because our very nature is so prideful that we think we have to work for salvation. That was certainly true of the Jewish leaders in the first century and many of their followers. And so Jesus is basically saying, look, you know, don't follow the crowd. Don't jump on the bandwagon here of just dotting your I's and crossing your T's and making sure you keep all of these laws and and somehow that'll get you in. You need to recognize it's, it's not, that's not how you get to heaven that's not how you get into the kingdom and indeed uh, you know the the as it often has been said, the road to hell is paved with good intentions and I' like to say the road to hell is paved with good works you know uh, people think they can work their way into heaven but don't forget what Jesus said earlier in the sermon you've got to be perfect. you have to be perfect and the only way to to obtain the kind of perfection that Jesus requires that God requires is by faith. we, we, we trust in Christ, and we are declared righteous. Romans 5.1 says we are justified, that means declared perfectly righteous, by faith. So then uh, then we get to uh, the famous by their fruits you shall know them passage, which is another one that has been uh, turned on its head. And here's where I believe Jesus is really, you know, explicitly calling out the Pharisees and scribes. And he says, beware of false prophets. And you can almost kind of see him looking at the Pharisees and scribes, and everyone else in the crowd's kind of turning their heads and looking at them too, because that's who he's talking about here. He says, "...they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree... Bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. So that's just an extended metaphor. He wasn't talking about literal trees and literal apples and oranges here. He was just saying, in the same way that a good tree is going to be filled with fruit and be luscious and healthy. But a bad tree is going to be, you know, rotten, and it's not going to produce much of a harvest every year. In the same way, you can kind of tell, that the same way that you can tell what's a good tree and what's a bad tree by the product of the fruit, uh, you can also tell a false prophet by the fruit. Well, what is the fruit that he's talking about there? Uh, Well, if you go a couple chapters over, Jesus uses the same analogy in Matthew chapter twelve, when he's talking about a tree being known by its fruit, and he says. Uh, Either make a tree good and its fruit good, or else make a tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, and here he is directly speaking to the scribes and Pharisees. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart brings forth good things, and an evil... Man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things, but I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. So the fruit here, going back to the Sermon on the Mount, is what they say. That's how you can tell a false prophet. Not by what they do, but by what they say. You listen to their words. That's what Jesus means by, by their fruits you shall know them. And it should be clear from the context of Matthew 7 alone, because remember, he says these are people that outwardly, based on their behavior, look like sheep. So you'll never be able to recognize that they're wolves by looking at them and watching their behavior because they are imitating sheep. And that's exactly what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. They had the, all of the, the proper garb. They had the huge phylacteries. They said the right things. They made loud clanging contributions into the offering plate. They, outwardly, they looked the part but Jesus says, but listen to what they say. And frankly, the the early Jews in that first century there during Jesus' ministry, they they already kind of knew that. They could tell there was an attitude, there was a tone. And so he's saying, listen to them, because if you just look at their behavior, they're going to look like sheep. But by listening to their words, in the same way that you can tell a bad tree by its bad fruit or a good tree by its good fruit, if you listen to their words, you'll know whether they are a real a prophet or not. So most people take this passage, by their fruits you will know them. And again, they turn it on its head because they'll look at someone who's living a sinful life outwardly, behaviorally, their you know, drunkenness or you know, sexual perversion or their language or just they're, they're living a, just a total profligate life. And they'll say, well, that person can't be a Christian. By their fruits you will know them. Well, Jesus had said just the opposite. He said, you know, when you see people that are acting the part and look outwardly like sheep, listen closely because by what they say you'll know whether they're sheep. And and so that's the the bottom line application for us today is the only way to tell whether someone is a born again believer is to listen to their testimony. And if they indicate by their own profession that there's been a time in their life when they trusted in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again to pay their personal penalty for sin and they placed their faith in Him as the only one who can save them well, then we have to take them at their word because uh, only they know whether they've believed something. It's not for us to say whether someone has believed something or not. Now, of course, uh, Calvinists are quick to say it's not what you believe that saves you. It's how you believe. You have to believe the right way. You have to make this promise and pledge and commitment. and, And if you're not keeping your end of the bargain, then you never were really saved. But salvation is not a bilateral contract. It never has been. It's not an agreement where you sit down with God and promise to do X, Y, and Z. And he says, okay, if you'll do it, I'll give you eternal life. Salvation is a unilateral gift. It's one directional. God's the giver. We're the receiver. And John 1, 12 says we receive that gift by believing in Jesus Christ. So Jesus is indicting here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, these scribes and Pharisees by pointing out that although they may look the part outwardly, inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. And then he, he sort of directly summarizes what he's saying in the next section of chapter 7, coming to the close here. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Well, what's the will of the Father? To believe in me. Jesus said that plainly in John 6, verses 39 and 40. So basically he's saying just because you call out Lord, Lord, doesn't mean you're a kingdom citizen. You're in our Language today is the church age. It doesn't mean you're a born-again Christian. And these Jews, many of them, are going to be surprised someday because he says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, haven't we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And he's going to declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In other words, at the second coming, many Jews will be shocked to find out they're not going to get into the kingdom because they never had the righteousness that the kingdom requires which is faith righteousness. And so Jesus concludes by saying therefore whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them is like a, a man a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain descended the floods came and all the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains descended the floods came The winds blew and beat on the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And with those words, Jesus ended his famous Sermon on the Mount, as we call it. Matthew then says, And so it was, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. In other words, his teaching was not consistent with what the scribes had been teaching. And then it's interesting, the very next chapter that Matthew includes, the very next section, is Jesus encounter, uh, well, he, he cleanses a leper first, and then in Matthew 8, verse beginning in verse 5, he heals the centurion's servant. Now, the centurion, of course, was a Gentile, and his faith was commended by Jesus and Jesus said, you know, Matthew tells us when Jesus heard it, the faith of this centurion he marveled and said to those who followed, assuredly I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. So here you go, Matthew is making the case in his gospel that the the self righteous scribes and Pharisees uh, did not have faith. They were just basically keeping the law legalistically without ever trusting in God. And here this dirty, rotten, filthy Gentile, who, according to the Pharisees and scribes, would have been far from the kingdom, was in fact commended as having great faith. And then Jesus makes it clear when he says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west, meaning Gentiles, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. But the sons of the kingdom, meaning unbelieving Jews, the ones to whom the kingdom really belongs, they're going to be cast out into outer darkness. They'll never get in to the kingdom. And uh, so so that's that last part there was not part of the Sermon on the Mount, but it's kind of interesting because it, it comes right out of Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount and just sort of reiterates the point that he was making uh, as he recorded under the inspiration of the Spirit Jesus' words. So bottom line, the Sermon on the Mount is, uh, is all about Israel and what it takes to get into the kingdom. But of course, the requirements for entrance into the kingdom of heaven have never changed from Genesis uh, to Revelation. It's always the same by faith. We're saved by grace through faith. And if you are listening to this podcast today and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, let me encourage you to do so today. It's not a matter of walking an aisle or signing a card or raising a hand or any other type of formulaic response. It's a simple private personal matter between you and the Lord where you say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. And so I'm trusting in Jesus Christ, your son and my savior who died and rose again for my sins as the only one who can save me. And if you've trusted in him today, then on the authority of scripture, you have become a child of God, a born again believer, a part of the family of God. So thanks for listening today. That was the Sermon on the Mount in sort of a quick overview. I hope that helped you kind of put it in context and maybe make some applications in your own life. Be sure to check out our website at notbyworks.org, notbyworks.org. And uh, there you can sign up for our regular newsletter. We send out periodic newsletters with new resources that are available for free for you to listen to or read or watch. Uh, And uh, it's also just a great way to stay in touch with all that uh, that's going on through our Ministry. You can check out our online store where we have lots of books and DVDs and streaming. We're actually getting away from DVDs, so the DVDs that are left on our store right now, once they're gone, they're gone. We're going to be doing all streaming video. So we have quite a bit of streaming content already, uh, but we do still have a few DVDs left. So again, thanks so much for your encouragement and support. Reach out anytime. You can call us at 1-800-895-1851. That number again, 1-800-895-1851. Or you can reach us by email uh, at notbyworks.org on our contact page. Thank you so much and God bless.